Well, good morning, Central Presbyterian Church. It is a good and joyful thing to be with you this morning. My name is Scott Redd. Um, I am uh, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and I'd like to start, before we delve into God's Word, just saying thank you for the friendship that Central Pres has shown to Reformed Theological Seminary, our New York campus. Pastor Jason Harris and Chris Hildebrand have been good friends and helpers, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be what Paul calls co-laborers or co-workers for the sake of the gospel in the city of New York. Our text today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, verse six through 11. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. It starts off talking about a they, and the they here are the disciples soon-to-be apostles of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it goes like this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up the reading of your word. You have endowed your prophets and your apostles with the Holy Spirit that they might rightly articulate the words of Christ, the revelation of our God, And so we pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, you would give us, Lord, hearts that can appreciate them, minds that can understand them. And we pray, Lord, that the result would be tongues that respond in worship, hands that go out and glorify you. So help us, Lord, now as we consider your word. Give us wisdom as we do so and imprint it upon our hearts. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in the gospel accounts, as is actually often true in the Christian life, questions are quite a big deal. In other words, much of the gospel is is kind of about how to ask Jesus the right question. And as we see, oftentimes people don't ask Jesus the right question. Oftentimes Jesus is helping them ask the right question before he gives them the answer that they need. I'm reminded of an elder scholar in the doctoral program that I was in. He was a philologist. That means someone who spends a lot of time in language and text. And he was well known for the way that he would respond to students' questions, often my questions, that were built off of the wrong assumptions, that were asking the wrong thing. He had a very patient way about him. He would say, I think what you mean to ask is, (laughs) if you've ever been the parent of young children or been around young children, you know what it's like to get asked questions that don't quite have the right assumptions, the right understanding behind them. 
Well, Jesus is an excellent teacher. And when he is asked questions, he often gives the answer to the question that should have been asked, not the question that was asked. In this case, on the surface, the question has to do with how soon Christ is going to restore the geopolitical entity that is the nation of Israel following her long exile under foreign nations. After all, the disciples might say that Christ has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. Now, Jesus, what are you going to do next? And it's not an entirely bad question. As a matter of fact, we actually see that Jesus himself is also concerned with what's going to happen next. We actually read, if we go back in the chapter 1 of of the book of Acts, we go back to verses 4 and 5, we see that Jesus himself is telling them, okay, now things are going to start happening. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, as he calls it. That is the Holy Spirit to come. You see, Jesus has told them or has suggested to them that they should be concerned with what happens next. So the question that they're asking him isn't entirely unwarranted. We even know if we were reading our Old Testament that prophets like Jeremiah and Joel said that the Spirit was going to come when the nation of Israel was restored. So if Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, maybe that means that now is the time for this political agenda to be enforced. And so they ask, is it now time for the nation of Israel to rise again? I think my professor would have said, I think what you mean to ask is, (laughs) you see, the problem with their question is that they are too focused on their own personal perspective, their own very local concerns. They're so, in fact, concerned with their personal issues that they're missing the much broader cosmic and global nature of the project of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd actually say the apostles seem to be making two errors. They're making an error in terms of what is the timing of Christ's redemptive work, and they're also making an error in terms of what is the scope of Christ's redemptive work. You see, they're not just having a problem with chronology, they have a problem with geography or scope and location. The first error is about the timing of Christ's work. They seem to think that the fulfillment of Christ's work is imminent, that's going to happen at any moment, it could be right around the corner. Is it at this time now that you'll restore Israel? The question also belies their preference a little bit, doesn't it? It's kind of like when your child asks you, um, uh, is now a good time for dessert? Right? They're telling you, I think now is a good time for dessert. Right? Or when I was dragging my daughters around downtown yesterday and they said, is now a good time to order an Uber? I think, what were they saying? They're saying now is a good time to order an Uber. So the first error has to do with timing. The second error has to do with scope. Notice what they don't ask. They don't ask, Jesus, is it now that you will restore creation? Is it now that you will make it so that all nations come together and see the glory of Christ? They don't say, Jesus, is it now that you're going to conquer Satan, sin, and death so that they are now on retreat? But rather they ask, is it now that Israel will be restored? You see, in their question, they set their sights too low. They're settling for a local solution when they should be looking for a global solution. 
And so in reality, both errors reflect a kind of small thinking, don't they? They expect that Christ is here to finish his work in this time and in this place, but in fact, he has a much larger project, a much larger agenda in view. We often miss for ourselves the global cosmic aspects of Christ's work. We often think about what's going on now, what's happening right in front of me, what's happening in what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, calls my imminent frame, right? The space right here in front of me that I can see and I can feel and I can think about and engage with. And don't get me wrong, the Bible encourages us to think this way as well. The Bible tells us that God is actually concerned with our smallest, most personal fear and anxiety, that we can bring these things to the Lord. As a matter of fact, in that doxology that we just sang, What does it say? It's profound. Praise the God from whom all blessings flow. That's the blessing of waking up this morning and having the ability to get yourself to church. That's the blessing of having friends and family, being able to sit here and to listen to worship, to be able to breathe air, to look up in the sky and to be able to see God's glory. These are all of the small, imminent blessings that flow from the God we praise and we serve. The Scriptures tell us that we can bring all of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, no matter how small or large, because God is the God from whom all blessings flow. And yet, there is also something deeply comforting, something something deeply consoling about the pondering of God's eternal plan for the cosmos in the midst of our individual suffering. Are you kept awake at night with deep anxieties about the future? Do you fear that you will never find the success that you were looking for, the things that you thought were waiting for you just around the corner? Maybe it was the wounds of old relationships that still nag at you or the terrible constancy of your own unmet expectations. Maybe you're longing for a friend. Maybe you're longing for a spouse. Maybe you're longing for children. Are you in a constant state of unrest because of the divisions and the conflict that are so apparent in the culture and the city around us? See, the gospel of Luke is telling us to consider Christ's eternal cosmic plan in the midst of these concerns. He's reminding us, much as John does, the other gospel writer who writes in John 16, that Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you that while you are in this world, you will have suffering. And I'm telling you these things so that you may have peace. Because in this world, while you have trouble, you may still take heart. You may still be encouraged because I have overcome the world. You see, all of the gospel writers are clear that Christ can sympathize with our fears. Christ can sympathize with our anxieties, with our unmet expectations. He's lived them. He's experienced them. And even as he faced the horror of of the cross, something that we could never face, the alienation of the second person, the Trinity from the first, at that moment he faced it, but he could do so with peace. He could do so with confidence because he knew that the Father had promised him a greater glory 
He could do it because he saw the beatific vision before him. So it's interesting how Jesus responds here to the apostles when they ask this question. When he responds, he gives them the answer they need, not the answer that they were looking for. Look in verse 7. It says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you. It's not for us to know. Now, why is that? Why why doesn't he just tell them? Why doesn't he give them, you know, it's going to be about a couple millennia or something like that. Why doesn't he give them an answer? Well, I know myself, and I know people like me, I know that we have a tendency that when we're given a timing, when we're given the exact moment, we know what we can plan for, then we can start making plans. But notice, what does Jesus call us to? He calls us to faith. He calls us to trust. He doesn't give us a timetable so we can say, well, it's going to be 20 years. Well, in that case, I'm going to spend 15 years having a good time. And then the last five years, I'll start prepping for the 20th year, right? Well, that's probably a good amount of time to give to it. But what does Jesus say? He says, you're not going to get a timetable. You don't get to know the time. You can't have a plan that you get to manipulate that might even give you a false sense of control. But you have to trust. You have to have faith. This is, according to the author of Hebrews, the essence of faith, the belief in things unseen. Like Abraham, we have to trust in the Lord to fulfill his work in his time. And this is the lion's share of faith. It's about surrendering your future. It's about surrendering your past, to be honest. It's about surrendering even your present unto the Lord and saying, this is for you, O God. I will live by faith. It's about planning, using your wisdom and your rationality to plan, but to recognize, as the Proverbs say, that though man plans his way, the Lord guides his steps. This can be very difficult, can it, in cities on the east coast of the United States. Places where you are told to have a 10-year plan, that you should have benchmarks in your life that show you that you're on a successful path, Uh, things that show you or at least give you the illusion that you have some control over this life around you. My town, the city of Washington, D.C., is all about plans. It's all about knowing what's going to happen next. But I would encourage you, spend any amount of time with your more experienced elderly fellow church members And you'll start to hear stories about how the Lord often did the most important thing in an unplanned way. How the thing they thought they were going to get was foiled and the thing they weren't looking for came to them. And when they look back now, they wouldn't have it any other way. When that happens, we call it a God thing. But Jesus is telling his disciples here in the book of Acts that all of human history is a God thing. Like the author of a book, the Father has crafted the story as he pleases. So we don't get to know the time and the seasons, but here is what we can count on. We can count on the fact that we have an advocate, that we have a comforter, that we have one who will testify to us of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father, that we will not be alone and that that Holy Spirit will empower us 
and that that empowerment is something we desperately need. Jesus is saying, I will not give you a timeline, but do you want to be my people? Do you want to participate in my kingdom? Then you will need my spirit within you. Don't worry about the timing of the end, but trust in the spirit that I am sending to you. But remember we said there are two errors in the apostles' questions. It's not just the question of timing, it's the question of scope. It's the question of the location. They first say, will you now do these things? And then what do they ask? Will you restore the nation of Israel? We have to remember that the story of redemption in the Old Testament has always been about Israel. It's not that it's not about Israel. But what Jesus is reminding them is that it's about more than Israel. You go back to the earliest stories of Scripture in Genesis 1. What does God create humanity to do? He creates them to what? Go out and fill the earth and subdue it. Notice the language is very plain there. They're not supposed to stay where they are. They're supposed to go out as little images of God, as if they were little statuettes filling his temple with his image to reflect back glory and worship upon him. As Abram is called out of Ur. What does he promise? Do you remember? He's promised that his family will be the way in which all of the families of earth will be blessed. Is it about Israel? Surely. Is it about the descendants of Abraham? Absolutely. But it's about so much more than that. God's redemptive plan is like a universe that contracts upon itself until it finally focuses in on one point of singularity, one person, the person in the work of Jesus Christ, only to explode again out into a universe of constellations and galaxies. The Great Commission springs forth from the cross and the empty tomb. So the proclamation of Christ was never meant to be for Israel alone, but it was always meant to be for the whole world. The prophet Isaiah says this clearly in Isaiah 40 when he says, and as Handel reminds us during this season of Christmas, doesn't he, when he says that in the restoration of Israel, who will see it? Who will see the glory of God? All flesh will see it together. There's no other way that you can be as clearly cosmic and global than that. This is not just about a small geopolitical restoration. This is about the whole world being wrapped up in the glory of God. But here we have the apostles at the moment of a great redemptive event when the Spirit will come and the kingdom of God will explode into the world like the Big Bang, and they're still thinking about a plot of real estate in the eastern Mediterranean. You see, they're thinking about Roman imperialism, but Christ is thinking about a much greater imperialism, that work of the trifecta of destruction, Satan, sin, and death. Jesus says, you want Jerusalem? Is that what you really want? You want Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the seed, but the world is the tree in full bloom. You want Judea? You want the Galilee? My kingdom is for the ends of the earth. Judea is just the beachhead. It's just the gateway. 
Jesus' goal. His purpose is for his people to spread over the face of the earth, bearing witness in our lives and in our words and in our love of the salvation that he has won for us. So that when others see us, they would see our king and they would hear us speak of another place, another country, a far-off country, a place that we yearn for and they watch us yearn for it. Imagine if this is true. Imagine if this is really what's going on in the world. I say imagine because I know it's not easy. After all, the disciples walked with Jesus. They ministered with him. They watched him do miracles. And yet, at this point in their lives, they still did not understand. But we have a helper. We have an advocate. As the Apostle Paul says, the Holy Spirit, or what Paul calls the Spirit of Christ, the spirit of sonship that cries out within us, Abba, Father. He says that it is this spirit that makes us possible to move from, man, from imagination to conviction, to move from a vague sense to a full-fledged belief. I know that we all have anxieties, anxieties that lead to fears, We all have sorrows that lead to grief. We all have struggles that lead to failures. We all have hopes that lead to unmet expectations. The here and the now is constantly intruding upon our desire to serve the Lord. But Jesus says that these moments are exactly the times when we get to bear witness through the spirit of what the Father has done for us through the Son. I have a good friend who's an old saint, an old Christian woman, and she's lived a life of much suffering, decades and decades of incredible physical oppression. And when she reflects on it, she's very clear. She says, I don't glorify my suffering. I don't act as if it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. I don't act as if this struggle was not hard. It was terribly hard. So she doesn't glorify in her suffering, but she glorifies in the Lord who is shaping her for glory. And she uses that apostolic metaphor. She says, we are like stones that are being chiseled out, carved out from a quarry so that we can be used to build the temple of the living God. This world is the quarry. These oppositions that we face, the suffering, the struggle, the strife, They are the hammer and the chisel, and they're quarrying us out. They're chiseling us down. They're making us smooth so that we can be kingdom stones to build the temple of the living God. It is by the struggle, it's by the suffering, that the Lord drives out our small-mindedness, our selfishness, our tendency towards hate and towards destruction and towards death. We don't glorify in the suffering. We don't act like it's a good thing. It's not. But the Spirit sustains us through this process of being formed. It can be hard. Jesus told us it would be. But life in this world can be filled with hurt and yearning. But we can still glory in Christ because he has indeed overcome the world. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you this reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that as we hear it, we'd find our hearts transformed, that we'd find ourselves, our persons responding in like kind, and that we would find our effort and our effect in the world, both in what we say and what we do, transformed by your word, which does not return void. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we now come to the table and take part in the spiritual nourishment that is the Lord's Supper. Give us hearts of repentance and faith that we would come to this table joyfully and in a spirit of celebration because we are confident in what the Lord has done on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.